Well, welcome Trinity Bible Church as well as any family or guests that are here this morning. Uh, we are thankful for uh, our time to gather here on Sunday morning. I have a, a brief announcement uh, before we start uh, regarding uh, holiday schedule coming up. Uh, as some of you might know, uh, Christmas Day falls on uh, Sunday this year. And so in the past, we have uh, done Christmas Eve services and then had um, whatever the Sunday closest after that celebrating as the Christmas Sunday. But this year, it's on the Lord's Day. Uh, so we are changing things a little bit. We are not going to have a Christmas Eve service this year. And Christmas Day, the service will be at 11 o'clock. And so to give you opportunity, whatever traditions that you might have in a family, especially with, uh, with children, that you'll have the opportunity to um, hang out in your pajamas as long as you usually do. But uh, we uh, are full, firmly believing that Sunday morning is non-negotiable. There are a lot of churches, both in the evangel- and many in the evangelical tradition, that are jettisoning, just getting rid of their Sunday morning service this year. <laughs> In light of a Saturday night service, we believe that we are not Seventh-day Adventists, or else we would always have it on Saturday. And we believe the Lord's Day, as set down in the New Testament and followed throughout Scripture, is the reason um, for the celebration of Advent in the first place. And so uh, we'll be meeting here at 11. The doors will be open at 1030 uh, for fellowship and coffee. There will be no child care. And we know that many of you have visiting families, so we'll bring in as many chairs as we might need for kids and any visiting family, and it'll be a family service on the Lord's Day celebrating Advent. Um, so that's the schedule uh, for Christmas this year. Uh, we'll send out a, an email in a couple of days to just for the people that aren't here to remind them as well. Now, we are continuing in our, in our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are in chapter 13, and this morning, we are not finishing it out. But in our reading this morning, we are going to read almost the entirety of the chapter. We're going to read, when I'm going to read, verse 1 all the way to verse 52, which is the actual natural grammatical break in the passage, meaning that verses 1 through 52 is to be viewed as one teaching segment, and then there's a break in 53, which we'll be covering moving forward next week. So I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to primarily focus today on verses 44 through 52. Reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 52. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and the great crowds gathered about him. So when he got out of the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he answered to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but he cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman uh, took and hid in the measure of three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemies who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. So will it be at the close of the age. 
The Son of Man will send angels and they will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field in which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The word of God. Please take this time to pray silently. Heavenly Father, your church gathers to celebrate the resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ, here on the Lord's Day. Lord, may you edify and lift up the body of Christ, who here on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, are looking toward the rest of the day and the rest of the week in which they will encounter while being a a kingdom citizen and whose inheritance is, is looked forward to in God's eternal kingdom at this time now are surrounded by unbelief, are in the midst of a fallen kingdom ruled by sin. And they themselves will face the own their own battle with themselves while believers being indwelt and powered and renewed by the Spirit, unable to understand and, and incorporate the Word of God and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to have victory over the sin, yet this week they will fail. So facing that, the need today for your people to be refreshed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the burdens they bring into 
assembly. Lord, may they give those to you. The church would be confronted by their sinfulness. Repent of it. And draw close to you in the spirit. And their affections turn to you, Lord. God, that they may be comforted. That no matter. No matter their sin. No matter their length of time away from you, God, your grace is more ever sufficient, ever calling. So God, may the church be edified, lifted up. May their hearts be attuned by the Spirit and their minds be illuminated by the Word. God, we pray for the unbelievers in our midst. God, that they would be brought to new life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and your holy and true Word. They'd be made to see that they are sinners in need of redemption, rebels, both by birth and choice against the holy and true God. And yet that same God made possible their salvation and calls them to repentance and belief in the Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of his people. Lord, Mostly, may you be glorified in the midst of our worship as we continue, as we have started through song and prayer and fellowship, and now we continue the ministry of the Word. So may your Spirit fill the believers here in this room. Tune our hearts and minds to your Word, God. We pray all this to the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Why the long reading? Well, it was to test to see who fell asleep. The long reading was meant for one purpose, for you to see the intended reading of the actual teaching itself. Uh, Taking the section to read it out loud, and hopefully you were reading along, was to see how suddenly things seemed to us to have shifted in the the dynamic and way way in which Jesus was teaching prior to chapter 12, when he's accused of healing by the power of Satan. And then he turns to parables, and you'll notice there's there's a theme that runs through all of these parables. Before he separates with his disciples, the crowds are told parables for the purpose of their not understanding. And then twice Jesus will quote the Old Testament, to point out that these were things foretold that he was fulfilling. That those, the people who he primarily should have been waiting for him, the people of Israel, the leaders of the age, and all of these things that were waiting for him, that that had the scriptures and the the scrolls of Isaiah attached to their, their priestly garments while he's quoting Isaiah to them about their own unbelief. Something long waited for was Messiah to come, call repentance to a people who would not hear and would not see, and instead accuse Messiah of doing the work of the adversary. So two times in these parables, Jesus will also mention the adversary. It makes it very clear who it is. Satan, the devil of old 
And he is the opponent of the kingdom. And those who are in unbelief are his children. And he leaves no doubt in two of the parables, both of the the weeds that we went through last week and then the fish here, that there are two destinies awaiting these people. One is as a kingdom citizen of the Most High God. The seed that was cast on the good soil, the good soil which was prepared beforehand by God Almighty. The wheat growing among the weeds in the world. Their place is in the kingdom of God. Whereas the bad fish, the weeds, the children of the devil, their place is where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there is hell. He's leaving no doubt in the parables, but the people who are the weeds, the people who are the bad fish, have no idea what he's talking about. And his disciples even are going, what is he talking about? Why do you talk to them in parables? And so he takes them to the house where it says, now the crowds are not around. It's Jesus and his disciples. And there's another theme in it. They don't understand twice. And then after he tells them these last few parables, he asks them, do you understand all these things? And when you read their yes, you're supposed to go, nice, finally. And don't get too excited. In two chapters, he's going to rebuke them for being heavy-headed. And so, but this is a, this is a big moment of revelation God is revealing something to his people here about his plan of salvation and his works of righteousness through Christ. And we're supposed to be, as many of you hopefully reading this, the Gospels, the New Testament letters, only those who have the Spirit can actually understand them. And they're meant to teach, instruct, and comfort the faithful. One of the things that we often forget to read when we're reading any of the Bible, is that it was meant to comfort us. I'll give an example. If I were to say the book of Revelation to you, what's it about? A vast majority of people would say, mapping out exactly what's going to happen right before Jesus returns. Wrong. You might say, I don't know, it's very confusing and strange. Partially right. The actual answer is in the first chapter. It's to comfort those churches. The churches that are listed in the beginning of Revelation, the seven churches, it is said that it is a comfort to them. Why? Because they're living in the midst of persecution. And so John is given a revelation by God. And he's taken up and he's seeing, he's seeing how it's all going to play out. And the victorious ushering in of the king into his kingdom at the end is to tell those faithful who are dying for their witness of Christ to find comfort. And not in the here and now, but in the knowledge that God has ultimate victory 
and their place is guaranteed in his kingdom. The here and now, the flesh and blood, we have no hope. Our hope is future. Our hope remains now that we are sealed by the Spirit and no longer who we once were. But all it takes is for you to leave here today and have someone aggressively cut off in front of you in traffic for you to realize your sin nature has not quite left you yet. Our hope is future. And our hope is to bring comfort in the midst of the knowledge of who we still are. And so Jesus, writing these parables, and, and, and I mean, speaking these parables, and being written by Matthew through the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, he has these patterns of showing who adversary is, showing the, the security that the one who is a believer, who is a disciple of Jesus, has in their future hope in the kingdom. You're the seed who was planted by the Son of Man. The soil was prepared Already, you are the wheat that grows amongst the weeds, and you will be gathered up to that kingdom. And then he's going to use a couple of more points, starting in 44, to drive home to these disciples. He's speaking to them now. And the thing he's going to talk about is value and treasure. So starting in 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, some of you might be thinking, this is like the the reference of the person like hiding the lamp under the bed. He's hiding it, so it's a negative, but that's not. This is not inferred in the negative at all. This is a person who, uh, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus told me the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. The Greek word for treasure is, is where we get the word thesaurus. And so the treasure itself is also used throughout the New Testament to describe a storehouse. And every time or generally when it's used as allegory, it's speaking of the heart or the inner working of man. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, what did he do? He covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has in order to buy the field. He's contrasting something. The kingdom of heaven, which he's talked about like a seed. And it's like wheat growing amongst the weeds. And it's like a treasure that you find. And your only response is it's in a field and I'm going to sell everything I own and buy the field. Now, I want you to understand the depth of the parable. The merchant or the the way that it's described, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which a man found, is the idea of someone who had much in order to buy the field, had a house, probably had cattle, probably had all these kind of possessions, servants, all these things which would have been utter madness in the first century. No one would find a treasure in a field and go, I'm going to sell it all and buy a field. And that's the point. 
His only reaction is, I have to possess the kingdom. It's more value than anything I have. And so he sells everything. We'll see this repeat throughout both the teaching of Jesus and when we get into the New Testament letters and Acts where people are hearing the gospel and they're selling all that they have and then becoming a part of following the apostles and seeking to minister to others. But here the parable is very simple. What is the kingdom of heaven of like? It's like a treasure that's of more value than any worldly possession. And when you see the treasure, you know it. It's of more value than anything I have. He goes on. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, which is a, a word that's talking like a, like a, um, a sea-bearing merchant, someone who would go from port to port and he would buy and sell goods. And where he's searching, everywhere he goes, is in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so the word for pearl may seem strange to you, but it's actually, the word just means precious stones. And throughout antiquity, things like that were called pearls or precious stones were anywhere to three to ten times more valuable than gold. And so this is a merchant who, again, is well off and knows what he's looking for. He's looking for a particular stone, a particular precious stone. He finds it, and he sells everything he has. Because now he has the ultimate treasure. Do you see what Jesus is getting at, right? The kingdom of heaven, put in your mind. I'll do it this way. Put in your mind that which you value the most. It's worthless in comparison to Christ. Now, when I say put in your mind, which is value to you, some of you are probably like, oh, it's my children. It's my husband. It's my wife. It's my Bavin collection. It's not my Bavin collection. And whatever it might be, that's not what you should have been thinking about. Let me say it a different way. We talked about one of the messages that goes throughout all of Scripture is comfort. Comfort for the believer. Now think of it this way. What makes me comfortable? And I really like being comfortable. Where do you find peace? More than likely... There are things that are in your head, if you're honest with yourself, that is not Christ. We find our comfort and our peace in all kinds of worldly things. Peace and quiet. How many people want some peace and quiet? (laughs) One brave person. Oh, two brave people raised their hands. One was my wife. (laughs) True, honest souls. Peace and quiet. If everyone would just shut their mouths. (laughs) Give me an hour, but what's really you're like, give me a week, a month, a year. Just, and it keeps going. If all of you would cease prattling on, that would bring me comfort. To some, it's 
There's no measure, there's no amount of money in your bank that will make you feel comfortable enough. And so the pursuit of it becomes comfort. There's comfort in acknowledging that I have enough. I have enough in case this happens. I have enough in case that happens. I have enough. I don't have enough, so I have to do more so that I can feel comfortable. Some of us, it's, it, it is, begins in something that's good. Like, I adore my children, and I want them to grow up and be good, functioning people. But before you know it, your whole life is living through them and making sure that every single decision that they could possibly make is the right one because you're making it for them. Doesn't matter if they're 24 or 10. You find comfort in the knowledge that my children, look at my children, they're amazing. No, they're not. And neither are you. We substitute things for Christ. And we put more value in them than they actually have. And when you substitute something for the love of God, what happens in your life? Guaranteed. You can just map it out. That's where I went off the rails. That's where there's those, there's no rails anywhere in my life because everything I put my hope and my joy and my comfort in is not Christ. Look throughout all of the scriptures. And you can find when God is substituted, things go wrong. Adam is put in the garden. He is providentially God's representative on all the earth, meaning he rules all of the earth in God's name. Completely sinless. Is given a companion. It's not going where you think it is, ladies. Given a companion. Still has complete authority over everything that enters and is in the garden. And he's called to work the garden and protect the garden. The temptation event, when we read it, the serpent, although an angel, Adam has providential authority over the servant, the serpent, and has the ability to cast him out of the garden, which was his responsibility. But what does he do? It's like, this sounds like a pretty good sales pitch the serpent has going to my wife, who I'm called to, to protect. Yeah, why, why not eat the fruit? Substituting something for God. You see it in the patriarchs. Abraham is going to be given more than the sand that being counted on the seashore. Descendants that will be a blessing to the nations. And he's an old man going, I have no heir. God is appearing to him. And speaking with him and promising him. And yet, he and his wife, Sarah, come up with a better plan. Substituting, maybe we need to help God out in order to make it work. 
off the rails. Isaac, Jacob, you don't even have to go over those two guys, too easy. Judah, seriously? What about David? Everything in the Old Testament is leading to David. All the way up to the line of David, and you're waiting. We've been waiting for the one who's really going to be God's representative on earth. And David is chosen, and he's faithful. He's a God after man's, man after God's own heart. And everything he does while you're reading his story, you're like, yes, he's the one. He's the one. Until it's time later in his life where the kings go to war, and instead of being at war, he's taking walks on the roof. And you go, oh, substituting something for comfort that he had had his whole life in God. I don't have to go through all the Old Testament, right? You can look at your own life. You can mark it by when you substitute your comfort and joy for something other than God. And Jesus was telling these disciples, these people we like to look at and go, why, how are they watching this and unbelieving? How do they see this and do, and and then, but here in this instance, in all the midst of all these parables of not understanding, not understanding, and he tells them, this is who you are. And this is what the kingdom is. The unimaginable wealth, you can't imagine it. It's greater than anything you can imagine. Imagine your greatest treasure, your greatest worldly treasure. It's nothing, it's garbage compared to the inheritance that you have not earned, that God is gifting to you. You didn't Work the soil? God did. You didn't cast the seed? God did. You simply received a gift that had no work of yours. And your response is, yes. The brokenness, I see it. The ability and the desire to constantly stray, I see it. God, help me in the midst of my constant rebellion. More treasure, more value than anything. The, the parable of the net we're actually skipping because we've dealt with what that is from last week. The idea of separating the good and the bad as we covered earlier. But now moving down to 51. Don't underestimate and don't overestimate this exchange. Have you understood all these things? The word for understood is, is plain in the Greek. It's, it's, it's to take in, to, to gather, to, to make or, or take ownership. It's the idea of like there's a full understanding of what's been said now. Two times the answer is no. Or two times it's a, an expression of why are you talking in that way? And have you understood this? No. And so he tells them, he explains it to them, what they are or what, who they are in this kingdom. You're the seed. You're the, you're the wheat. 
And, and this is what has been done for you. This is the kingdom you've been placed in. And then he tells them, and this is what the kingdom is. There's nothing else that you're going to look for. There's nothing else in all of the world that you're going to find that is more valuable, Christ is saying, than me. And then he says, have you understood this? They said to him, yes. Maybe the most overlooked thing in all of chapter 13. Jesus making it through these thick-headed disciples that we just constantly are looking for. What in the world? Yes, we understand it. Do you understand it? Do you understand? If you are in Christ, do you understand? Can you say yes to the fact that you understand that God on high, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is unchanging, who is perfect, who is infinite, and you, who are a created being, a creature, sinful, changing. There's only one party out of those two described that can do anything about the broken relationship. And he has. Through the blood of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, union is possible once again between man and God. You have received that, though you've done nothing. You've been given the word through grand explanation, and some of you for being believers for decades, and reading and reading and reading, do you understand what you've been given? The gifts that you give and receive this time of year. Whether you're young or you're old, when you're young, you're really excited. When you're old, you're like, I don't know what I want. Please not socks. But do you lose sight? Do you lose sight of the greatest gift of why we're here, of why we celebrate this time of year? Why we're supposed to celebrate it every day? Every day, Advent. God sent in his humiliation the Son to live a life down here in the muck with us. In his fallen, in his fallen kingdom, in order to live a life of perfect and complete sinlessness in accordance with the law, and willingly take the punishment of all of his people on a criminal's death on a tree, cursed by God for you and I. Cursed. That's the gift. The curse rightly yours, reversed. The one who didn't deserve it, the only one, takes it willingly. That's the gift. That's the comfort. I don't make light 
ever of the difficulties of life. Life is hard because we are broken and we're surrounded by broken people. But we've been set apart for no reason that you could ever go, well, this is why God chose me. It's my great hair or whatever it might be. None of those reasons. God in his good pleasure, but he puts you here now at this time in history and you have been given the spirit and redemption now in this time of history so that you can share your life and the testimony of Christ to all those around you. So that that gift can keep on going. Have you understood all these things? My hope is your answer is yes. If it is not yes, I any of the elders or any people you know in the church would be happy to talk to you and pray with you right after church, anytime. But if you have said, I understand all these things and my answer is yes, praise God. Remember the gift. Remember true comfort when the flesh wants you to substitute it moment by moment, every day. Christ is the comfort. Christ is the gift. And in Him, and in Him alone is true peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we consider the words written by Matthew so long ago, through the power of the Spirit, this testimony of Christ. The kingdom, His kingdom that He has set apart for His people of incalculable value. Lord, we are sinners and we err. We fail. We hurt each other. God, let us never forget your work on the cross for your people. Let us never forget to continually repent and be forgiven and to grow in Christ Jesus. Lord, may your church be comforted this day and a reminder of the great gift that we've been given. Lord, strengthen us Give us boldness to live out that gift and to share it with others. We pray this continued worship would continue to glorify you in Christ's name. Amen.